Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Uh, with me this morning, actually, is uh, my regular co-panelist, Julian Rabbit Murdoch. It's nice to be in the same room with you for once. Yeah, this is a, uh, this is a rare treat. Um, and we're also joined by a returning guest and a friend of the show, Rob Davio. Hello, nice to be here. We're, we're all here together uh, at Rabbit's house by chance because we're um, having a weekend where we've been trying to you know, learn some new skills, and this weekend we've been experimenting with um, some really off-the-wall, like, cooking techniques. <laughs> experimenting um, is the right word, because <laughs> cooking would not be the right word. Yeah, it, I, I think we, we we got maybe one edible dish from every three things we tried. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, about right. We, we were trying a... The theme of this weekend was uh, molecular gastronomy, uh, so we were all trying to be, like... Um, you know, uh, Farron, Adria, and right. uh, Grant uh trying these like fancy high end dishes using foams and powders and bubbles and gels and and almost all of it was <laughs> almost all of it was clusterfuck, right? <laughs> like <laughs> it was a train wreck. Let's just be clear. But but that put you in mind of um, you know a, a topic that we could we could discuss this weekend. And uh, so w- w- what did this what did this remind you of what what well, were it, the associations the, the thing that the thing that I I started thinking about is here we had all of these complex processes right we had big instruction manuals and we're spherifying this and creating this and that bath and it struck me as very game like in a sense that we were trying to follow a set set of processes to get a certain result and I kept having this feeling kind of like when I'm playing a strategy game that's over my head where I know all the pieces. I've read all the rules. I understand that, you know, my my tanks, uh, you know, shouldn't be sort of driving willy-nilly into a field surrounded by infantry because one of those fuckers is going to have a bazooka. But I, but, but I still lose, right, which is a very common experience to me in gaming. And I kept wondering, do, does all this gaming we do have any value whatsoever other than the pure entertainment? Do we get better at anything because we're, I don't know, exercising our minds this way. Like, does gaming make us better cooks? And my, my feeling after this weekend has been, well, I sure as hell hope not, because I'd hate to see what would happen if I wasn't a gamer. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking for myself, um, you know, a year or so ago, I actually wrote a piece on this, like, that I got a lot of the same joy from cooking as I do from gaming. Like, I think... Um, I don't know. I, I I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of quest aspect to uh, to cooking. Um, you know, like finding ingredients, finding a really good butcher, finding you know the person who does like who you know who has these you know the perfect cut or this one this one chemical that you know you can't find anywhere else. I think there's I think there's a lot of fun and a lot of discovery in um, cooking that I that I really associate with with a lot of games, not necessarily strategy games, but I think the um, you know the the sort of pursuit of pleasure and excellence in cooking or any sort of creative pursuit. I I, I think there's a lot of analogs to that in, uh, you know, in like role playing games and such. Uh, you know, like games where you go and like explore a world and get really familiar with the terrain. I kind of view you know my like when I started cooking, the kitchen was kind of that magic terrain now where it's like hmm. this whole world where it looked like this. You know, it just looked like it was all before me. Once I started to like learn what the hell I was doing. Uh, then suddenly it all starts to make more sense, and these cooking rituals that had just been, you know, just think like steps in a recipe. Now I sort of understood the principles, right. and it was it was a pleasure. But you get me skeptically. I know I just was cracking up, picturing you almost Calvin and Hobbes like in your kitchen, <laughs> not seeing it as a kitchen, but some sort of fantasy land for you to, you know. Level right. up. The, the, the oven's a transmogrifier right. in which you put things and dinosaurs come out. Um, what, what's interesting is you were just talking is when we were discussing this topic earlier this morning, 
I realize I, given that I'm in tabletop gaming, was absolutely thinking 100% of how tabletop gaming would apply to other skills. And I realize vastly different when you go digital, right? Because one of the things that I think has helped me in playing a lot of games is I'm able to absorb and process complex data sets quicker, I think. You know, when you're learning a lot of games and you're learning rules, what you're trying to do is learn a flowchart in your head, all right? This right. and then this and then this. And I am much better now than 15 years ago at learning some sort of process, even if it's just directions going to a house if I don't have GPS. It's like I can do that better because of learning rules, which doesn't really apply at all, you know, for a World of Warcraft or a digital yeah. experience. That's a completely different thing right there. Right. I, and I, I also think that there's a there's a curiosity factor, and, and this sort of gets to the whole maker movement to a certain extent, too. I mean, I think to be a really good gamer, you have to have a sort of inherent curiosity about how the systems work, right? I mean, people talk about things disparagingly about games like World of Warcraft and how they really just become system optimization games, right? If you're playing it as a game, if you're playing it to level up and get stuff, it really just comes down to sort of figuring out the spreadsheet in your head of what the optimal path through the game is to get the maximum amount of loot in a minimum amount of time. Um, and, you know, that's that should be a valuable skill, right? That should be something that, that translates to the workplace or driving a car or flying a plane. Well, that kind of just sums up life, isn't it? <laughs> just a series of spreadsheets where yeah. you're trying to get as maximum L- amount L- out, <laughs> minimum amount of time. That's really depressing, well, Rob. <laughs> but actually, though, the, the system optimization thing that you were talking about there, um, I, I've been thinking about this the last few days because uh, so over the over the over the fall, I just really had this insane insane schedule, and I got like really you know incredibly exhausted. Where like I I really just stopped you know, almost enjoying games, enjoying writing, like a lot of things I really took pleasure in. Usually, uh, started to sort of pale for me, and uh, you know I was finding it hard to work. But you know, in the wake of that, I find myself thinking that. Um, you know, one of the things that that I love about like strategy games and such is that you you look at you look at them and how they take systems that you're sort of familiar with, but then cre- like create game mechanics and rules out of them. And like as a player, you learn the trade offs and relationships that sort of drive the underlying game. Mm-hmm. And that's something I feel that is often like lacking from the way, at least for me, the way I go through like daily life, like the the sheer number of times where I'm not really aware of the trade offs until later. You know, I realize that there's a cost to doing something one way as opposed to another. And I and I think one of the things that you know you can you can get from strategy games, and I'm I'm certainly going to be trying to apply it more going forward, is just a better understanding of. You know, again, sort of the way the way systems work, where you are the system, where you, or where your work is the system, or something like. What what are the what are the trade offs and costs and resources that you really have? You know, instead of instead of sort of being unconscious about the way you you know the way you you tackle things, become more aware of what you're really doing. You know, what it's taking out of you, what you're what you're getting out of it. I mean, to some extent, this comes down to the whole sort of gamification of life activities thing. I mean, I've been I, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea when it applies to things like working out. Right. I, I find I'm much better if I have systems and goals and structure. If I just wake up every morning knowing I have to get some exercise by the end of the day, there's a really good chance 1 a.m. rolls around and all I've really done is had two martinis. But if I have a system that I'm working or if I've got a game out of it, I mean, I'm doing a couple beta tests for things right now where I like I wear a panometer all day and there's different games that tie into how many steps I take. I mean, that sounds ridiculous on the face of it because it's just 
walking. But on the other hand, I definitely like look at three o'clock in the afternoon and think, well, maybe I should walk to town and back with the dog and might not have otherwise done that because there's this game that's intruded onto this life process. See, I think one of the reasons that, I, you know, I'm, I'm at least skeptical about that, and I'm, I'm curious how you've reacted to stuff like that. The way it often comes across to me is that it's sort of like, um, you know, the achievementization of life, right? Yes. That's, the, that's the standard critique, right? Like, a lot of this yep. stuff is just bullshit carrots, you know, put in front of you. <laughs> Congratulations, and, you're a level four walk-to-towner. Well, exactly. <laughs> like we, start, we started that, uh, that horrible Pictionary game on Xbox the other day, and you turn the game on, and it's like, hey, winner, have, have an achievement. Yeah, your achievement yeah. was, like, turn the game on. Like, <laughs> but, come on. <laughs> so, I mean... So what what I'm talking about is like where, where where I'm and I'm not sure I'm not totally versed in sort of the the theory behind like gamification and there's so much snark uh, around that whole conversation that I've kind of tended to avoid it in the last year, but um. So, you know, what I find really appealing about the idea of, like, gamifying anything or converting it into, you know, a set of rules and mechanics that you can understand is I like the the possibility – I like the the way that it might create, like, consciousness of things that you were unconscious about. Right. Not necessarily, like, just incentivizing good behavior because I think incentives – again, you do run into maybe dangerous territory because right. what if – Achievement unlock you put on your shoes. Yeah. Well, yeah. right. And, and also, I mean, I think there's something very dangerous about – what what happens on the day you don't give a damn about right. when your pedometer right. is like you did a great job today rabbit that's that's what worries me you know once you break the circle you're just like well it's, now it's, it's just over. a number but it's but, over. That's, yeah. but isn't that just like working out i mean isn't it just like having a system for going to the gym well these systems have always been in place i mean we have it in school right you finish second grade level up to third grade because you got like <laughs> 92 on all your th- i mean it's been there frequent flyer programs and cashback rewards and all of these things that have been around for all of our lifetime is now just taking off and getting a name called gamification, right? So it's toothbrushing. Right? I'm, <laughs> I'm a third-level split toothbrusher push-upper. You know, I mean, I mean it, it, it's, it's getting a lot of names put on top of it. But the underlying system of rewarding you for doing something that a company wants you to do – has always been around, right? Right, right, and 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 that I think is kind of where where I sort of lose interest in it, in just the idea that it's sort of first of all, I mean, for for whose gain, you know, like if you know if Delta is giving you Delta miles or whatever, that's because they're trying to like anchor you to their to their airline and not have you sneak off with Virgin or something. Um, but I, I just I find it really more compelling when you know if you if you can create a game where it just again makes you. It's not sort of incentivizing you just to do an activity, but just to give you the sort of understanding that when you play a strategy game, when you see the way all these pieces sort of interrelate, you know, and right. all these separate mechanics, yeah. suddenly, suddenly it's not this 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 game with like separate you know sub games you're playing alongside each other. They're all sort of woven together, right? And games are really good at exposing you to those trade offs, or I should say, good games are good at that. I mean, I think a games. Um, even something as simple as SimCity is sort of the first time you start encountering those, oh, well, if you really don't care about crime and you don't actually put any police stations out, here's the chain of things that happen. Property values go down. And those are very simplistic trade-offs that you would think most rational people would get. Um, but that's something games are really good at. And um, it's, I think, rare you encounter real-world systems that give you that kind of feedback. I remember um, learning to be a pilot 
And one of the big problems with learning to be a pilot is by the time the plane teaches you those things, you're dead, right? So, so learning something like how to land a plane is all about getting close to those edges of where you would learn a lesson and understanding what happens if you go there intellectually and then drilling that so that you never get there. So, so important systems, unfortunately, don't give you a lot of opportunity to teach you the bad lessons. That's true. I mean, and nothing's quite as systemized, right? In a game, here are the rules, and they're either told in a rule book or they're implied, or if you're playing a digital game, like, oh, I can't do that, or you can, like, figure out. Life doesn't have codified systems for the most part. I mean, we've got laws and we've got social conduct, but it's um, and it's an interesting thing. I'm trying to think of what you're saying. Do I apply some of the decision-making process I use in playing games in life? If I do, it's very unconscious. Right? I'm not saying I don't, but one thing that I have noticed is that you know I hang around with a lot of uh, game players and game uh, critics. And I think all game players are game critics, whether you get paid for it or not. Sure, right. And when you play a lot of games, you tend to break down what you liked and didn't like. And I think that that's different than some people don't play games. Like you might see something like, I didn't like it. Why? I don't know. It was awful. Whereas I think when you play a game, you're like, well, I like this, but I didn't like that. And I wanted more of this. And less of that. And I think it gives you a critical eye to other things in life. Like you go to a restaurant and you say, I really didn't like the atmosphere, but the food was good, right? You can start to pick apart what you liked and what you right. didn't like other than I didn't like the restaurant, right? right. So it, it makes everyone sort of be able to break down large things into their separate components and analyze them. I, I think it goes beyond that. I think it's also not only do you start saying, well, I like this about this game, but I wish there was a catch-up feature. I think in order to be a even moderately successful gamer, like one that will enjoy it because occasionally you do win, you have to have the self-critical eye to be able to look and say, oh, here's what I did wrong, right? Here's what this other person did really well. They got rewarded for this. I got penalized for this. Unless the game is purely just luck, um, I think that's a valuable skill that you get beaten into you as a gamer. I think you really get it beaten into you as a strategy gamer, right? I mean, I think of the more complex um, kinds of games we talk about here, you know, all the various paradox games that have just, you know, you, you couldn't actually write the rule book for them because they would just be, there are too many things connected. Um, the only way you learn from those games is by, by, by analyzing your own performance. Oh, this happened here. Now I understand that if you really press France, they have all these connections that you're not going to expect and they're going to screw with your colonization, whatever. Um, and I think in the workplace, those kinds of skills are actually pretty valuable, right? I mean, I do find myself, um, if, if I'm working with somebody, if I'm working with an editor and I've delivered something and they're really unhappy with it, I think I have better skills at understanding understanding what went wrong in that relationship and what what did they want versus what did I give them. Um, or you write a piece and you see this one really resonated with the readership. This one really didn't. I think I have much better self-critical skills about those things now than I might otherwise. Right. But, you know, and, and this is something I, I actually wish uh, Bruce Garrick were here uh, to talk with us because I think he's he's good at keeping it real in, in conversations <laughs> like this. Uh, well, because I've talked to Troy, and at least according to Troy, that Bruce has a bit of a, a skepticism about the real utility of games to teach things that are truly valuable. Um, so, but what you, what you're talking about, I mean, I'm listening to that, and I can see, you know, I get what you're saying because I apply this. I can liken this stuff to gaming, but I wonder, like, yes, I can relate it to my gaming, but that's still a skill that anyone, even a non-gamer, has to learn. Like people have been doing Office, you know, 
you know, Don Draper isn't playing Catan, but he's still, you know, he's, <laughs> you know but dudes that like that. that would be an interesting show in itself. <laughs> yeah, that would be. But, but, you know, non-gamers still navigate these things, uh, you know, without the sort of uh, training that games provide. So, I mean, is it just, is it actually, are the games actually teaching you these skills or is it you're learning the skills and then you're sort of relating it back to life skills? Well, let me, let me give you the one the example games. where I think it is, it is absolutely clear that I am better at something because of gaming that I would be otherwise. And that's negotiation, right? So countless games that we play, particularly I think face-to-face tabletop types of games involve auctions, bluffing, negotiation, playing poker, right? I mean, all those things are about reading a room, reading a handful of people, understanding what you can get away with, understanding the value of trade-offs. And when I went to business school, I took a class in negotiations, which was fundamentally game analysis. It was about right. how do you understand what's valuable to certain people? How do you manipulate them? How do you come up with you know, uh, you know, know, trade-offs that everybody's happy with? That is fundamentally a game situation. And I know for a fact that I'm better at negotiating a contract or a word rate or that you know a house purchase because I'm better at that kind of thing. I think I probably get more of that from playing an awful lot of poker than from anything else. But I think I think just understanding what goes on in a complex negotiation is something you don't get enough experience with in the real world to get better at. Right. I mean, in our uh, economy, our culture, you know, in the United States, you only negotiate for things that are absolutely important, cars, houses, and jobs. Right. Other than that, right. you just take it at face value. So the three things that are going to kill you financially, <laughs> you're put into this situation where you have no skills because everything else in the store is take it or leave it. Right. So right. there's a, no, no, you don't haggle in the United States. Right. right. Unless it's those big three. Um, it's interesting. I was trying to think if there's one thing I can point to that says gaming made me better at this. And I think there is one thing. I am a better presenter at work, especially like not a big auditorium, but like a room of 10 people where you're going to get questions and think on your feet and keep people's attention. 100% convinced I'm better at that because I was always the DM growing up. <laughs> right. So, I mean, right. you got to paint, you, right. I mean, paint a picture. You, you're, and you got to keep your friends and siblings occupied. And we were like 11 year old boys who just very quickly would go off track. So, how do you keep them there? How do you make sure everyone's involved? How do you answer their questions? Think on your feet. And there are times when. I'll get done doing a presentation at work and I'll think, I just DM'd the room, right? We didn't have characters <laughs> or anything like that, but like I had a, a adventure that I wanted to get through and they were going to keep going off course and oh, pulling this lever and doing things and killing the guy they were supposed to talk to. How do you get it all back on track so we end up at the final place? And it's it's the exact same skill set from DMing. Now, you also do a fair bit with like rules and like, you know, t- how to teach rules more effectively, how yeah. to like keep people engaged while they're while they're learning rules. I mean, that seems like it would also dovetail with that because one of the things that it's so much easier when people understand the way something works. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if like a rule book, the, the the trouble I run into with game rule books a lot of times is they're describing procedures. But it's not until I see it play out over the course of a game that the logic of it becomes clear. But when you teach a game, one of the things that you've actually you're, you're actually quite good at is sort of like bring the logic into focus alongside the the process, right? What you're doing and why it's important. And when I explain a game, I try to if I know the game really well is do just in time rules. Like you start playing a game and you think I should explain this, but it doesn't matter until a couple turns in and no one's going to get a couple turns in and say, oh, I wish I had known that, right? So then you get to a certain right. point in the game, you right. say, okay, let me interrupt and add. One new thing, one new thing, which we talked about before was kind of the thought on Risk Legacy, right? right? Legacy, exactly. Right. It's like, oh, wait, one more thing. And then that, because you open an envelope, it turns it from a punishment to a reward, right? right. 
You open an envelope, you feel like you've earned it, and it's not, oh, i got to read the rules. It's, hey, look, rules. Right, but, but th- that gets to an interesting design question, too, which is how do you build – I mean, we, we talked about this with Legacy a lot, but how do you build systems, whether they're game systems or not, that are self-teaching like that? I mean, because like we were saying before, if you're flying a plane – the the system can't teach you because it's too dangerous when you're teaching somebody to negotiate if the only thing you're ever going to negotiate for is you know a house or a car it's too important to learn on the fly and to walk away and say oh gosh i really got hosed on that car oh well i'll learn better next time (laughs) in 10 years (laughs) 10 years and it cost you five grand because you were an idiot um you know, I mean, I, I deal with this a lot of times when we're when I'm working with like new writers and they're trying to figure out, well, how do I pitch something? How do I stay on word count? How do I construct something? And people who are sometimes very good with the English language, right? They're 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 good, competent writers, haven't had enough feedback in the system yet to learn that their rules for beyond just constructing good sentences. Mm-hmm. And and I mean that's a, that's a real interesting question because. Um, let's face it, most rules systems, whether they're games or otherwise, really kind of suck. I mean, I can't remember the last time I really read a rule book and felt like this was the best possible way for me to get through this set of learning. Yeah, I mean, I, I always go to YouTube and let somebody explain the game. Right. I mean, it's like democracy, right? Which is it's the worst possible system except for everything else. So, <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing about a rule book is it's it's the established default in a tabletop game. You have to provide it because you don't know where people are going to be. You don't know if they're going to be, you know, uh, on YouTube or have a smartphone in their right, pocket. Right. More and more, you can count on it, right? And so, but basically, especially in my company at Hasbro, we do a lot of um, family games. Let's buy right. a game. Some and ten-year-old to, kids can open the box, right? Ten-year-old yeah. kid, or we're going to take it to the beach house, or we're going to take it camping, or we're going to take it to grandma's, and and you kind of play these games sometimes when you're away. From things like that. So we have to explain it in printed form. And I'm doing a lot of work with that these days. And it's my grail quest, right? So I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> I'm going to get there because rule books really have to explain two things. And I know we're getting a little off topic here, but... Um, we, the topic wasn't all that good to start with, so it's <laughs> <yeah>. all right. <laughs> so maybe this is the topic. Uh, rules have to do two things that oppose each other. They have to teach you the game the first time when you know nothing, at which point you want them to be intuitive, light, friendly, not get bogged in details, don't tell me the exceptions, don't confuse rules with strategy, just give me the highlights so I can get going. Then the rulebook in the middle of the game has to be the exact opposite, which is, I forget how this works, give me the exact law, strict, with all the details so I can now lock it in. But they live on the same book, right? So how do you have the light, friendly overview and the factual, detailed analysis in the same place without one hitting the other? And and in a lot of cases, what we've seen is People actually try to split that up. I remember the very first version of Settlers of Catan I ever bought came with the – was it called like Professor Catan or something? It came with this little goofy tutorial light walkthrough version of the rules and then it had the real book. And they were separately printed. They had different fonts. They were clearly written by different people. Did that approach work? I think it probably did. Now, I mean, I already kind of knew how to play the game before I ever bought a copy of it because I played it at a convention or something mm-hmm. years and years ago. Um but but I always thought that was an interesting approach. And you see plenty of games that sort of have the easy rules and then the more advanced rules, which always makes you feel like you're taking the short bus to school, right? It's You always yeah. feel a little bit like, wait a minute, I, I, don't, I want to play the real game and I want to play the baby well, game. Especially when the when the beginner rules actually screw up your ability to adapt to that, yeah. the that, Yeah, that's, 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 that's bad When like, a relationship doesn't carry over. Right. right. Where, yeah. Like I had a strategy and now it's screwed. Yeah, or you like, have to unlearn. 
Right. In like, this game, this doesn't work this way. It's like, well, don't don't teach it to me that way. Well, like Formula Day, uh, which we've played a couple times. We played Beginner Rules. Have you ever played the uh, the Advanced? Yeah, and it's a totally completely different game. game because like, it all becomes, the tactics change. It's a resource allocation game. Yeah. The Advanced game is a resource allocation game, and the the basic game is actually a racing Woo-wee, game. Woo-wee, let's go racing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say they're both racing games, but I, I would say, like, because <laughs> racing is very serious and tactical and uh, resource-intensive. Yeah, right. yeah, t- tune no. into our F1 show. Yeah, but, but, I, but I would still say that, uh, yeah, so it's one of those cases where, like, the, the beginner rules actually don't really prepare you for a damn thing in, in a lot of cases. Like, because the simple part of the rules that's easy to explain to somebody, it's going to take 10 seconds to t- teach someone no matter what. But then all you're doing is teaching players all these bogus rules. Yep. That will right. that will screw, and that's up no good bit. at all. But it's interesting that you know we 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 talk a lot about the, we lament the loss of rule books and all the feelies in our digital games. Right, the last game that I can remember that had a really expansive rule book was Dominions. Right, which we we talked about on a show here. I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago, we we did a, a set of games of Dominions, and um, you know, the, the rule book for that, which I think didn't Bruce write that rule book? It's like two hundred and fifty pages long, or something like that. I, I think he may have. Yeah, I mean, and that one, or he just wrote the fan fiction. He for may <laughs> right the slash fiction. Yeah. Um, you know, that was the last time I remember feeling like here was a manual that had everything you wanted to know about a digital game. And I think we've gone completely the other way where most digital games now don't come with really any rules at all. They come with elaborate tutorials that you essentially have to play through. I I have mixed feelings about that because I generally hate tutorials. Well, generally they're very bad. I mean, this is, this is the thing. It's like damned if you do damned if you don't, because first of all, people learn things in such different ways. Uh, but the other thing is when, whenever you're starting off that, like learn by doing thing and like, sh- show me, don't tell me the the question then becomes, where do you start? You know, what, what, what's intuitive enough that you don't have to linger over. And then what do you have to hammer home? And that's going to change from person to person. I think the sin, a lot of tutorials commit is that they, they do, they do linger over the obvious fa- facets of the design. Like and click they, here to move. Right, and they right. still do, they still do a shitty job of explaining what you're really doing in this system. And we're going to be talking about this game next week, uh, but we, we, uh, Rabbit and I have been playing it a lot this weekend, A Few Acres of Snow, where it's one of those things where at first I found it pretty baffling. Uh, I, I played a very, a, a very poor game. But after after the first game, I started to see what the logic of the system, what it's trying to say about the French and Indian War, uh, the way the two sides have to play. And I think that's something that you know, at least when I'm learning a game, that's what really helps the rules stick for me. Like, it teaches me how I'm supposed to apply those oh, rules. Oh, when, when the rules match the theme, you almost don't need the rule book, right? I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like, I, you know, I, I without even really playing, I could sit down and flip through the cards to that game and immediately say, oh, I don't understand the exact system here, but I understand that... The, you know the British have better supply lines. The you know the French have you know much better access to the local resources. The British have a better military, and I know enough about that war that I can sit here and say, okay, I can understand what the basic yeah. strategies are, yep. and those look like they're going to work, right? And that's the worst thing is when you play a game and you think you know the optimal strategy, particularly a historical game, and it doesn't work. Yeah, right. Um, I wrote an article for a game design book um, and covered this topic about intuitive design. And it just reminded me what I did is I was at MIT through a work thing a couple of years ago, and we wanted to dig into this issue of how you explain games and rule books. And I figure they're kind of smart, so maybe they would, <laughs> maybe they could help, and, and they did. And um, 
But what I did is I brought a bunch of obscure games or obscure for most people, right? Non-gamers. And I broke the people into groups of two and had each person pick a game that looked interesting, but they had never played before. And I told them not to open them and they went and they got their games and they sat down. I said, okay, you're going to have five minutes to learn this game and then be explained it to the rest of the people. And that's when I told them I had taken the rule book out, right? So all, they had everything but the rule book. Now, again, smart people, but really under duress in five minutes. And most of them understood most of the game from the name and the really? pieces. and the Yeah, they, a game like Acquire. They would open it up and they'd go, oh, I read the back and it's called Acquire, so you're probably getting something. There's stock certificates and they're probably made and they match the colors of these buildings and there's a grid that matches this. So we kind of think that this means that they're buildings or companies that grow bigger and there's something right. about so they mergers. So they, the... they probably bump into each other. So they were like most of the way there. Now, there was one game. I can't remember. It was an abstract game. They're like, this has pieces that look like bugs. <laughs> I mean, that's as far as they could get. That's like a, Hive. Yeah. It was yeah, Hive. It yeah. was actually what it was. It was yeah. Hive. Um, but I was shocked at how much the game can teach you before you look at the rule book. And that's something to think about. Like, we open it. We immediately go to the rule book. If we went through the game and put out the board and looked at the cards, would we be better off when we read the rule book? If the game does its job, will we already have 50% of the knowledge going forward? Now, of course, if you make bad assumptions, you have to unlearn. But it was an interesting insight to so much of the game outside of the rulebook is telling you how to play. Right. I mean, and to me, that gets to – it starts bordering on simulation when you get to that point, right? I, I mean, I'm changing the subject a little bit. But when a game is so intuitive or so well-rooted in its historical context, you should almost already know how to play it, right? You sit down to play a driving game. I know you're a big fan of Rob. Um, you already understand all the core systems about what's going to make mm -hmm. that car move. You understand gear ratios. You understand traction. No. Right? A good simulation, you walk into it with a set of assumptions that are validated by the game, and then you learn more about the thing because it's a simulation, so you can try yeah. stuff out. Right? So, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the flip side of that is the more real the game is, the more intuitive and easy it should be to play. Yeah, well, which I is true. I've learned a lot about bean farming from the game. <laughs> So okay, always go for the red beans. Right? Yeah. That's the core lesson. But I, I do think that th that touches, though, on, I think, an important difference between uh, board gaming and computer gaming is, is that what, what I like about board gaming in so many cases, we talk about their simplicity and the fact that all the systems are there, but it's also that someone else has done the hard work of looking at maybe a more complicated system. Uh, if if you're taking the example of games that are sort of trying to represent some activity, like mm -hmm. military conquest, economic conquest, somebody's looked at those and said, well, how do you make a game out of it? What what matters? What are the salient features that are fun to manipulate, and what can we discard? Right. What happens a lot in PC gaming is that the hard work of discarding detail often doesn't get done. Right. In, it in just gets of... turned into an invisible system. Right. And and that's and that's that that I think is dangerous. We're talking about like how do we apply games to ourselves. So much of it is about you need these light bulb moments where like the the logic of the system becomes apparent. And I get that it's almost like a drug. I mean, I get it from board games because there's all, you know, after a game or two, there's this like light bulb moment where it's like, "Oh, now I see how these 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 relate." And I thought I was profiting by doing this, but actually there's a hidden cost but now it's now it's revealed in a lot of pc games it's like well stuff is just happening and there's all these things going concurrently that you sort of just have to track a variable stare at it see if it does anything and then try to sort of piece the picture together later but i think it deny it denies you it, it denies you the, that that insight into the system because 
in a lot of cases, nobody went around and decided what was really important. They right. just sort of threw it all up there and sort of let it ride. That's the – I mean that's the the wargaming history that's that's tripping us up in those cases, right? Because let's remember you know, a lot of the modern strategy and wargames we play started out as military simulations, right? I mean they started out with the intent of using them to teach people how to conduct a certain kind of conflict, right? They came from the military structure. And, and in that mode – you kind of want to absorb all the detail you can. If your goal is to actually teach somebody, you know, how to clear a room better, you want to create a simulation which is so incredibly accurate that you're invoking the emotional responses, not just the tactical ones. And I think that that drive on behalf of war game designers in particular sometimes really trips us up because you end up with games that – you know, as much as we love talking about Advanced Squad Leader, I mean, that's where Advanced Squad Leader goes into the rat hole, where you've got so much complexity that you really can use it as sort of the simulation of everything you could possibly do in that moment. And for many, many people, that's when it stops being fun. Well, I think in, in wargaming, part of it is a lot of that audience, I think, really does want the authentic. Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. you know, yeah. if you don't have the, the right Panzerkampfwagen right. variant. The back left armor of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think there's, to a degree, a, you know, boy, I wish, I, I wish I'd been a soldier or something. Or I wish, I wish I'd been, you know, part of a panzer division or something. Um, I think there, there are elements of that, and they want that authenticity. Uh, but yeah, I think that 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 does become a problem. But I think ASL is an interesting, and someday we're going to do a show on this because what fascinates me about <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> <laughs> what fascinates me about ASL is that you know if we go back to like talk about like, gamification and such, ASL is this wonderfully earnest attempt to take everything that can possibly happen in a combat situation in World War II and make a game out of it. And I find the rules so fascinating to read because as complicated as that game is, usually the rules make a kind of logical sense. Oh, yeah, sense. absolutely. Figuring that's out to why apply it's them, brilliant. Right. Yeah, figuring out how to apply them can be like arguing a case before the Supreme Court, like what takes precedence right. here. Right, because what, you can actually, yeah. if you've got the full rule book in front of you, you can look at the map and say, well, what would be really cool is if that I could blow up that building and it would drift smoke downstream to cover an advance from the forest. Yeah, And Guess there's what? a rule for every goddamn part of that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, but, it, but that rule book, deliberately, how they did it, it's like looking at source code. Yeah. Right. It's written it, with it numbers. Is source code. It, it is yeah. source code. It, it's source code for a programming language of how to play. So, I mean, it really does that thing I was saying earlier about that you're learning um, a flowchart. I mean, you're learning a very complicated computer system there, and the rules don't try to make it fun or friendly. Right? They try to make it detailed. And you. it's what I was saying before, right? It's about I want to look something up. It's going to be great. I want to sit down and learn how to play. I, I haven't been able to. But but to drive it sort of back to the original topic, like it, it, like as it so often does when you're talking about like what we get out of gaming, why we're drawn to it, it all does come down to learning. And I think you know if I had to say like one thing that that gaming really is good for me is that there's a sort of like suppleness of mind I think when you're constantly playing new games or learning to play them better or something where you're just used to breaking things down. Uh, systematically mm -hmm. and sort of trying to analyze the, you know, analyze really how they work that I think I'm not sure where I would get that if I didn't play games, like, because any, you know, any job, no matter how much you might want to get better at it, I think it's very easy to fall into patterns. Uh, there's, you know, yeah. you fall into ruts, but I think gaming tends to work a little differently. Uh, where you're, there's always some new system to learn. And usually they might contain like some kernel of different insight 
inside that inside the new game. Well, I mean, I think this is part of the reason there's a huge overlap between nerds and Wall Street, right? I mean, I've spent a lot of my life in and around finance, and um, the nerdiest and often most successful people who are running hedge funds down, you know, the Connecticut shore. Um, they're not only are they gamers, but they're addicted to that sort of systems analysis part of it, right? They want to build models to beat the system, right? And that's a system that doesn't really have very well understood rules. It seems largely irrational. And so people love to try to apply all of this logic and structure to explain and exploit this real world system, which happens to have a lot of money in it, which means that the stakes are interesting. It's the same people love to play poker, right? Because right. there's actually money, right? If I beat you at a game of you know, advanced squad leader, all I get is bragging rights. I'm not sure we would do it if we were playing for money because you can't get enough iterations. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you're talking about one thing that draws you to gaming is the ability to learn systems and new things and push. I like that. I don't mind it. But what draws me to gaming is interactive storytelling. You know, it's not a book that I read that someone else decided entirely and it's not improv where I have to do all the work. It's someone put together the set pieces of a story, and if it's a game that I particularly like, I'm going to have this very interesting narrative with highs and lows. Right. And, and, you know, at the end, and the game was the delivery mechanism for the players to tell a story. Now, but you are a game designer. I mean, I'm wondering, are you just relating to them on a different level? Is, is that analytical part so second nature that that's not necessarily what you think of when you think about, like, what you're getting out of games? No, I get that out of it, but it's not the one thing that drives okay. drives me to it. Um, because what – I played games as a kid, but what really made things take off is I went off to summer camp and discovered comic books and D&D, and I was 11 years old. And that was like uh-huh. – That was like a big two-week <laughs> period for me. Um, and so I came back with sort of this love of superheroes and epic stories. And then over here there's wizards and epic stories. And games to me have always been like how do you have that storytelling mechanism and – but but oddly, I mean, you're not a role-playing game designer, right? Not yet. No, I mean, <laughs> no I'm not a role-playing right. game designer, but a lot of the games that I work on, if you look at them, uh, pretty much all of them are trying to tell a story, right? They're, they are storytelling games. I mean, the two, the three big ones that I've had some hand in are, you know, Risk Legacy, um, Betrayal at House on the Hill, and Heroescape. And none of those are elegant, abstract yeah, they're not, Euro game they're not Reiner Knizia games. Right, right. they're not um, math with graphics, right? You know, it, it, and I can look at that and say there's many more elegant designs out there and nuanced and well-balanced things in there. But, you know, you've got an epic battle or the history of a planet or surviving a haunted house. Like, those are the things right. that yeah, I no, want to get out of sure. it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. What about you? What about, what about me? So, like... We're oh, what am like, I trying to get yeah. out of games? Um to me, games are almost always social, and that's part of my challenge as uh, somebody who loves strategy games is, um, frankly, without the internet, I wouldn't be much of a strategy gamer anymore because um, I find big, complex systems that are that sort of roll out in single-player games, a lot of the paradox stuff we play that is fundamentally single-player, even if it's got multiplayer bolted onto it, um, I tend to go through for a couple of plays and appreciate the system and sort of get that sort of Raf Coster 
itch scratched where you know you get you get it's difficult and you get a little bit better at it and you succeed and then it gets a little bit more difficult and you get a little bit better at it right that treadmill only gets me so far maybe because i'm just not good enough to get past very you know many of the hurdles for me it's about the the conflict and camaraderie of doing that with somebody else which is why i so prefer face-to-face gaming but even then i i if i can't get that i'd much rather play these things online with somebody and and then if i'm doing that i want to be talking to them and if i can't do that well at least if it's pbm i can you know be sending them notes back and forth so that kind of that human conflict that human conversation that happens around a strategy game i think is is by far the most important thing for me well it's interesting following up on something you said i guess last night when you're playing a few acres of snow is you said if this is done online it'll be 20 minutes instead of two hours yep Yep. and i was thinking about like well does that make it better right if i sit down across from you and we each pour a martini We've got two hours, and I, each decision has its own little moment to be thought about and discussed. Now, you can take it too far. You know, you don't want it to be right. eight hours. But right. if it's an hour, hour and a half, and I'm catching up with a friend and having a drink and playing a game in each decision, if I do that in 20 minutes on a computer, did I go so fast that I got to the end and I won? But do I remember what I did in the middle? I, that's a fair criticism. I mean, a game that, that I think fits this box perfectly is 1960 making it a president um which which i i think it's as equally a brilliant game as uh, as a few acres of snow and similar in the sense that it's taking a very narrow short conflict in this case the election and has a pretty complex system when you actually break it down into lots of different pieces um and it takes about two hours to play when you sit down with somebody the difference is if, if i'm going to sit down and play uh 1960 making it president with rob online we might play three or four times in a row Right. Right. And that creates a better story about our experience together playing that game over time. Right. So, you know, in in the number of times we've played, we can talk about the time that I almost blanked him. And he can talk about the time that he won the game entirely in the debates. Right. Because we've now had enough iterations. And part of the problem with big strategy games, I really think, is quite often you just don't get to play them often enough, even if you had a regular game group and you were playing four nights a week. They just take too long. I agree. And you don't see, and going back to something we return to a lot, um, is the the role of endgames. Our conversation now makes me appreciate the role of endgame a little more than I usually do, because it's in the endgame when the endgame is kind of the big reveal. You know, like, here are all the choices you made along the way, and here are the ramifications, and here's how the you know here's how the scoring really works, you know, where you know the map is not the territory type stuff, right? Where it, where it's um, you know you know you like yesterday when we were scoring up a few acres of snow, you thought you just wiped me out. It turns out there is a little more to that game than we thought. But if if you if you if I grant you that the juiciest part of any big strategy game is the last ten percent, which which I actually think is true in a really good strategy game. It's it's a nail biter, and there's been a lot of conflict, and you've told a really great story to get to the final push, right? And whether that last ten percent is because you're on turn ten of ten, or it's because you finally broke across the bridge and you've gotten that one objective, the the big cinematic moment of most strategy games is in that end game, and so consequently. Don't you want to get to that end game as often as possible? Right, and a lot of computer games don't even let you get to that end game. <laughs> right. It doesn't exist. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think that's that's definitely that's definitely was that part the point you were trying? Yeah, to Yeah, that's, that's what I was getting at. <laughs> is that, like, yeah, the, but the other the other thing is, um, you know, you're talking about like wanting to play these games online, and it is. I, I've always been a little bit resistant to playing my favorite games in, 
online as opposed to in person. Like, I'm not sure I want... I'm not sure I really... Like, take War of the Ring, which is, like, my perfect board game. You know, you got, like, a rainy day to burn or something with you and a pal. That's, like, my perfect war game. I'm not sure I want that in board game form where all of it's... Where all of it's sort of taken out of your hands and it's administered very efficiently and you can play, like, two or three games of War of the Ring in an afternoon. I'm not sure I want that. Right. Because um, I think part of it is maybe just, like, a really well-designed board game with, like, beautiful components and everything. There is a lovely... Um, it's a lovely like work of you know practical art. It's huge. You're, it's sprawling. Yeah. When you, when you yeah. get that set up, which takes a little while, yeah. And you sit down and you sit across the table and you look at it. You're like something is gonna happen. Right. This right? is big. This is yeah. wow. You know, this isn't. Yeah, I can play uh, some games on pen and paper, like you know, scratch it out. But you're playing the math, not the majesty, and that just is a majestic right. thing. And there's there's also a certain. Um, I, I, talk about this is going to be the most tortured analogy ever. A big, beautiful game with a long setup like that is very much like Jenga, right? It's the stereotypical gun hanging over the fireplace. You set the Jenga tower up, you know something is going to happen, right? Yeah. It's going to fall down. Yeah. It's going to be chaos. People are going to laugh. It's going to be noisy. Even better if you're using a Jenga tower to play Dread, which means somebody died because the tower fell over. When you set up a giant war game like that, or even when you set up something like ASL, which has got so many finicky things to set up, there is that sense of, like, something big is going to happen. And, and you're right. You don't get that at all in a video game. I've never really felt that in any video game. Yeah, it's very rare that you, you get that sense of, like, moment uh, in, in a in a PC game. It sort of shrinks things down, especially uh, board games on PC, I right. think. Yeah, because uh, they tend to be even more abstracted to cram everything on a screen. Well, yeah. What, yeah. yes, and what's interesting is um, we call them board games, but they're really tabletop games and people games. And a lot of times when people port it to a digital world, they get so focused on the board that they don't put in the things that I'm looking for, like how much money do you have? How many cards do you have? Right. Where is this? How many things are left in the deck? Or, you know, whatever ancillary stuff is going on that's vital to play the game well either gets minimized or forgotten or you have to push a button and go to another screen, right? My, my favorite example of this is um, the implementation of Puerto Rico on the iPad. Because Puerto Rico is a game where the board is really just record keeping. Every you've got a little, and there's no territory. There's none of that stuff. It's just you're keeping track of what stuff you bought, what plantations you have, how much stuff has come in. You could everybody could play with a piece of paper and just keep keep track of it by writing it down. And when they made the board game version of it, they kind of just threw out all the original components. They didn't lock themselves into the idea of oh well these have to look like that and they have to go here on a little grid right. and you, you know, your plantations need to line up like this because that's what the board scanned in as. Um, and instead what they did was exactly that. They said, well, what's the actually important thing? The important thing is being able to see what buildings other people got, being able to mentally look over and say, oh, gosh, this guy's got two level 10 buildings. I'm going to get screwed. Those kinds of things are what make that game interesting. And they did a great job of making that game as opposed to a copy of the board game. Right. Uh, getting back to the original topic, just one last thing I wanted to bring up with you guys is, um, so do you guys ever, like, feel that, you know, over the course of playing games or something, like, or your your habits as a gamer, your, the tactics you tend to gravitate towards, the games you tend to choose, do you ever learn something about yourselves, like, any weaknesses of character or, you know, strengths, you know, that maybe weren't you know, maybe you knew you had, but like weren't necessarily apparent until you see them borne out again and again in your gaming life. Habits. I don't know about weaknesses mm -hmm. in character. I you always play green. 
<laughs> when I just started at work, it was like certain people had colors and green wasn't taken, and I, and I took it. And when you play that many games, you don't want to remember what color am I in the right. middle. So yeah. you're always green. And no, just, I'm green, and Mike Gray's red, and Craig Van Ness is gold or black. You know, like he, Steve Baker's blue. Like we all happen to have a, our own color, and it just worked out. Um, for some reason, I am not interested in playing games or sports in real time. I don't know what that says about me. I love baseball and I like football because everyone takes their turn, <laughs> right? And then it stops and you think about it for a second and then something else happens. And, you know, it's got plays. It's got pitches. It's got things that have these pauses to just process, oh, that just happened. What's going to happen next? Basketball and hockey, I enjoy watching them somewhat. I never enjoyed playing them as much because it's all happening and it's you're thinking all there, yeah. it's all happening on the fly. Not that there aren't set plays or anything like that. I, I don't know enough about them to be able to watch at that level. So I can watch them and I understand the rules, but it's like, well, wait, wait, stop for a second. I want to process what just happened and I want to think about what's going to happen. And I love savoring those moments. And that goes completely into games that I like to play as well, which is there's some games that are simultaneous play. I think there's an Ice House game. or Yeah, like yeah, Ice House. Yeah, Ice yeah. House, where everyone really likes, like, can I think faster than you? Can I do this in real time? And I get like 10 seconds in and I'm like, you win. <laughs> the thing that I like about playing games is, what am I going to do next? And if, if I have to figure that out now, then it's not as fun. Now, there are exceptions. There's some party games where you're kind of doing stuff at the same time, but you're already kind of like in a different mental space right, at that right. point anyway. So is that a uh, failure of character? I don't know. I, I guess, right? Don't put me in certain positions. Don't let, have me lead troops, right? Air traffic control. Air not traffic control is not my <laughs> job or something like that. Um, yeah, it's just like I'll plan the strategy. You go to the battlefield because I'm going to get there and go, stop, hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time this weekend, you're like, all right, I'm going to bring this meal home. Like this is this was, this was Rob's moment of glory this weekend. So like it's our, our big cooking night. Like molecular gastronomy has been a colossal disaster. Uh, hours wasted, ingredients, foams everywhere. And so Lots we don't, of we buckets. Don't, yeah, Lots we don't really buckets. have a meal. Uh, you know, per se, we've got a couple dishes that maybe will work, but like we're hungry, we've been cooking all day and had no food. Rob's like, "Fuck and it, so make like, I'm making, I'm making dinner." Yeah. And so you step in there. Now, to me, the kitchen is always sort of a chaotic, hectic. It's place. real like, time. I, it yeah. is cooking is real time. Well, look at that. I am a walking contradiction because I love thing. the chaos of the kitchen and taking all these disparate things and making it all come out delicious at the is same the imposing, time. Is it the imposing? Is the the act of imposing the order on it that that because you were really like digging the whole like, all right, you on this, you on that. I got to be a chef. It was great. Yeah. I was, chop this, cut this. I need twice that. And just <laughs> throwing it together. It was a total demented power play. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I don't know what the difference. Maybe because I, I, well, at the beginning, I took my turn. I followed recipes, right? So I got a mastery of things at a slow pace that enabled me to make that leap. Maybe that would be the case if I suddenly... Started at, playing StarCraft. I, right, yeah, yeah, I started playing StarCraft. I was going to say basketball at age 40, <laughs> 41 and five foot seven. If I suddenly get some mad skills, uh, you know, I'd pay once, money to see that. It, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. I've got a six inch vertical leap. It's not. It's not good. But um, you know, maybe it's just it's daunting to me, yeah. right? And so I get I, I I decide I don't like it. But what maybe is is just I find it hard to do well, and so it's a fear of failure, right? That I don't have in cooking because I've done it enough. I, I was going to respond sort of the opposite, which is I think, to me, gaming, for all that we talk about it and write about it and analyze it and, you know, it, Bruce Garrick should call us on our BS and taking it all way too damn seriously, it's still fundamentally an escape for me. It's still a way for, for me to explore behaviors I wouldn't in a million years 
deal with in the real world, right? So I'm not so sure I've learned that much about myself in some sort of est-like self-awareness <laughs> moment. Um, yeah, people but, can Google that. Yeah, sorry. Putting my age on the table. Um, you know, I don't think I've learned stuff about myself so much that way, except that it's given me the opportunity to do things like play DEFCON for hours on end and wipe out the population of the planet a couple hundred times. You know, or, or you know, even in uh, role-playing games, you know, generally I play the good guy, but every once in a while it's really good to be bad, right? You play the martyr. I have not GM'd you in anything where you haven't died, <laughs> right? You love – speaking of – Big dramatic death. The dramatic death scene is your, like, 10% endgame in the war game. Like, if you – if we're getting near the end of the adventure and your character – isn't going to die, I think you get a little upset. Because it's usually like, right, <laughs> what totally does it all mean? Like, well, because totally we're, play, we're playing a one-off, right? You, in a, a one-off, one yeah. yeah. In a one-off. Like, yeah. it, not on a campaign, but if we're playing a one-off and it's got a prescribed story, I think it adds gravitas to you if your character has a defining moment, right? Of course, right? yes. And if you hadn't had a Absolutely. defining moment in the game, your defining moment, which is very acceptable, is an awesome death scene, right? Yeah, and I know this as well. So when I see you getting itchy and starting to do... <laughs> Time to kill them all. Start, set it up. Set it up. Like start getting the police sirens in the distance, you know, and you're running through the streets with a gun and they're closing in. I'm Time like, for a rabbit to die. This is what he wants. <laughs> Leave me. No, we can totally escape. Leave me. Leave me. <laughs> no, really. Save yourselves. <laughs> Just remember me for this. Well, I mean, so the, what, what I was thinking when I, when I asked that question is um, – so one of the things that I find like recurring in gaming, and I notice it cropping up in like my daily life, is I get it's not necessarily analysis paralysis, but it's more like when I, when I'm faced with a tremendous uh, array of options, you know, where where a problem exists but it's not like clearly defined, I tend to sort of freeze and have no way of working on it. And I notice this first in war games, you know, where like at a certain scale, scenarios were manageable. If I had like a clear you know, if I had a tactical position I needed to unlock and exploit, I could figure out how to do that. But if I was playing, like, a campaign game where suddenly it's just all very sort of free form and there's a lot of ways to maybe skin this particular cat, I would just sort of sit there, freeze, <laughs> and, like, completely lose interest in the game. And this is games I could walk away from. I'd just, I just be like, yeah, just mysteriously, the moment, you know, the clear, clearly defined problem vanished, I lost all interest because I didn't... What I what I learned later is that you know trying to create a solution for a problem that I can't even necessarily diagnose yeah. really is difficult for me. So so how, how are your relationships with women? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we got there eventually. <laughs> no no so but uh, but I would say um you know so that's something that's something I've learned about myself and I and I do see it sort of cropping up. Uh, from time to time, because, you know, I'm a freelance writer. Like, every day, to an extent, is sort of, you know, it could be anything. You're never working right, on one thing. Right. So it becomes this 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 task of continually uh, sort of diagnosing what what today's main challenge is going to be. Uh, so, so I think that's that's the one thing I sort of sort of get from games, and certainly in the last year when I've had to buy a car and started to face some big decisions. Now I find myself approaching those decisions, that, you know, those little minor but every you know mi they're minor problems, but they're still sort of like important crossroads for you know for for you and your family unit. I find myself approaching them much more systematically, yep. much more ruthlessly. I think, you know, to an extent, you know the. Games sort of fill the role that I think maybe a good 
econ and stats class could fill for a lot of people. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Mac. Like, yeah, yeah, it just teaches you like, well, here's how you really make decisions. Here's how you approach this stuff. And, uh, you know, so if, if you don't get it in school, I think games are a great way to sort of get that sort of ruthless analytical. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Bruce has never given me a straight answer about whether being a gamer makes him a better neurosurgeon. I still think it probably does. <laughs> I, I I feel like he wrote an article about this at one point. He may have. Uh, the, the, if if he did, there may be a link to it at the bottom of the podcast, <laughs> uh, if I remember. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, thanks for the great discussion. Uh, I hope it was not too much of an imposition on our listeners. <laughs> um, well, this this way is actually to, way we, to sell it. We took a few turns. Well, this okay. So this sort of blew up in our faces a little bit because we 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 did play board games, but we, the only game we really played is for next week's show. Right. So we can't really you know shoot our wad on that. <laughs> um. So so we were just sort of left with this, but I I do think I don't know. Like you know, you're catching us at the tail end of vacation. Me at the tail end of a vacation. Like work's about to start up again in earnest. And I don't know, this is just a reflective time of year for yeah, me. Yeah, for sure. And it's been a reflective weekend with lots of new challenges and uh, and gaming. Yeah, and molecular gastronomy is hard. Yeah, that's the big learning. That's a big thing. I've done a lot of cooking, and I didn't get involved with the spherification, reverse spherification, and turning gels into spheres. And <laughs> But I saw everyone else struggling with it, and I'm still wondering why we would do it. <laughs> Though I was a big it's fan of, of meat glue. For any people who do any sort of... Uh, Transglutaminase. Yeah, it's a very interesting powder that causes uh, meat to stick to other meat or itself. So I took a chicken breast, pounded it flat, put a filling in, and instead of twine and toothpicks, I just glued that sucker up. And <laughs> six hours later, it was like the chicken had been born with goat cheese in it. I mean, <laughs> that it was, was exactly like that, and it was amazing. <laughs> so that I recommend that stuff. It, it lets you it lets you fix nature's mistakes, like having chickens without delicious stuffings inside. The oh natural. yeah, well we put chicken skin on steak, so you had chicken nuggets with steak. What else? Did we oh, what we didn't do is glue bacon to scallops. Well, we didn't do that, but that's that's pretty conventional. But you did wrap the yeah, you did have the the what was it, the cow nugget or whatever. Oh yeah, the bird cow, bird, bird cow. cow, bird cow, and we turned uh, chicken into noodles, which was fine. That was I thought it was really good. Um, right, that was that was weird. Yeah. So anyway, so that's that's our show, and uh, next week we'll be talking about uh, Martin Wallace's games, particularly a few acres of snow. So thanks for listening, and thanks for the great conversation, guys. All right, thanks for having me.